Greetings all. Welcome to Margin Call, the podcast and editorial meeting for Best on Media. I'm your host, Russell Morris. I am joined today, as always, by our producer, Iming Piansai, one of my favorite people in the world. Uh, also here today, Melanie Feliciano, founding member of Queston. Uh, Paul Billingsley is here, a.k.a. Paul B., uh, a.k.a. Paul from the Mo, a.k.a. Lord Billingsley. <laughs> Welcome, Paul. Uh, always a pleasure to have you. Uh, and our special guest, uh, a first-time guest to the show, uh, contributing writer Amelia Gonzalez, um, it's a pleasure to have Amelia, and I, I do actually want to start with you, first of all, Amelia, because this is your first time here, and I'm very happy to have you. Welcome, Amelia. Woo-woo. Uh, I, I invited you for a number of reasons. One, you know, you're just like a very cool, smart, interesting person, and we like to have cool, smart, interesting people here, um, but you're also uh, one of the first Quest On contributors. Your story about paying college athletes was one of the first stories that we had on the site. It was very well received. We're all big fans of your work and we want to entice you to continue to contribute. Um, so that's the other reason you're here. Um, but we also uh, wanted to have you here because we are developing one of the verticals on the site, uh, which is dedicated to criminal justice stories. So why don't we start there? I, I met Amelia for everybody here and everybody listening through an organization called uh, Echoes of Incarceration. Amelia, I understand uh, that you're no longer there because uh, you're doing other works now. But you did a lot of great work while you were there. Could you just tell us a little bit about Echoes, how you became involved, who they are, what kind of work you did while you were there? Yeah, yeah. So thank you for an awesome introduction. And I would obviously, I would totally contribute any time to this amazing, uh, incredible effort. I have a personal connection with Echoes, as well as one that, you know, I find a lot of passion. But when I was 15, my dad was incarcerated. Um, and then two years later was sentenced to life imprisonment for a crime he didn't commit. And so, you know, personally, I felt like this is an extreme injustice. Um, but I really like racked my brain on how I could contribute. So when I was about 20 years old, I lived in Chicago and I worked as a civil rights paralegal, specifically um, with like police brutality. And then after I graduated from college, I graduated with kind of <laughs> not so applicable degree of cultural anthropology. <laughs> then I got involved. It's called I was a healing justice intern for a nonprofit um, called American Friends Committee, and I worked with young people who were undocumented as well as um, whose parents were incarcerated. And we did films specifically about resiliency. And then um, it came around to August when my internship was ending, and I was like, I need a job. Um, um, and thankfully, the person who I had worked with um, and the young people like who created Echoes asked me to be on the crew. And uh, I'd never done filmmaking or anything. But, um, Can you tell just a little bit about Echoes and what their yeah. mission is and what their work is? Yeah, yeah. So Echoes is a um, youth-led, totally uh, young people ages, usually like 15 to around mid-20s. Um, and it's a crew of about five to six young people who they themselves have experienced specifically um, parental incarceration. And um, most of their work is to use films and their personal experience to show the power of um, young people and also the resiliency that young people have, you know, in these specific situations. And then they use these films to 
kind of uh, push policy change when it comes to either like visitation or um, allowing parents to have physical contact with their children, you know, not have to have like a, a screen between them. And so, but it's mostly based in New York City and in New York State. Um, and so, yeah, that's really the purpose is how can these films become the catalyst for policy change when it comes to uh, parental incarceration? What are some of the projects that you worked on while you were there? Um, so I worked on a personal piece about my own experience. And then also um, we were working on a pretty lengthy piece specifically about uh, raising the age. So I know that it had passed, but there were still some uh, discrepancies and many many ways that, you know, didn't really follow through. Um, and so we interviewed some researchers in terms of like brain development and how that contributes and the environment that you grow up in and how that contributes. Um, and then also I supported the Close Rikers campaign. Um, and so we worked with them and to also, you know, film any of their events. And then on top of that, we did uh, Beyond the Bar which is a kind of a seminar that happens at Columbia University. Um, and so we, we do a lot of, and then we also worked with, uh, we did a short film on um, the People's Police Academy, which is a new initiative being developed in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn, really encouraging uh, police officers um, to, one, understand like the culture and the people, uh, but also to have training, not just like, you know, whatever logistical things, you know, they learn, but um, they work with a local nonprofit in Bed-Stuy to um, really support the people and not just go into communities, um, which usually they're not from, uh, and, you know, do the worst, <laughs> basically. So, um, um, yeah. so you're a badass, I guess, is what you're saying. No, I just, that's a very impressive resume. I know that you've been involved in this work for a long time, particularly mm -hmm. for a young person, you know, that's a very lengthy and impressive resume. Um, that's a big part of the reason we invited you. Uh, one of the advantages we have is that, you know, we are, um, we're a global news organization, you know, uh, we're national. Obviously you and I are in New York city. Mel's in New York. Emings in California. Paul's in California. One of our regular contributors is in Mexico city. She's developing stories about deportees. Wow. Uh, we're working to build that network. Um, and one of the important considerations there is, you know, when you talk about criminal justice issues, every municipality, every state, every country, everybody's got their own way of doing things. Uh, and I, I say that to talk about the Raise the Age campaign because most people, I, you know, I was surprised to learn this, but, you know, New York State until very recently was one of the only states in the country, one of two, I think, Amelia, uh, where 16-year-olds were automatically charged as adults. Yeah, yeah. And, which is pretty mind-blowing. You know, I, I, when I was... Uh, locked up as a young person, you know, when I first got out, and Paul will remember this time period, you know, they were trying to pass Prop 21, mm -hmm. um, which was a big deal because it changed the laws so so that, you know, it would go from 18, they wanted to lower the age, uh, and that blew our minds. We're like, oh, that's crazy, that's so backwards. We were having that conversation in 1999 that you're saying that they're having in New York in 2018. You know, yeah. we lost that fight, Prop 21 passed, but eventually people recognize that it just doesn't make any sense to charge children um, as adults in the criminal system. Uh, so yeah. thank, thank you for that. Thank you for sharing uh, your own story. Um, you know, you obviously come by this work honestly. Are you working on anything? Is there something that you yeah. like? Okay, so um, yeah, what do you, what do you think? 
Well, you know, one thing that I forgot to mention was um, I also recently worked with Yale University and we did a production about um, parental incarceration from the perspective of the parent, you know, being incarcerated as well as myself. Um, and that was really, I think, impactful to show that when you incarcerate the parent, you're also incarcerating the child, even though you may not you know, think of it that way. Um, when you punish one person, that can impact an entire community, which, you know, it does. Sorry, that's a side note. But um Anyway, so right now I'm actually working on a peace festival, <laughs> similar, similar um, with uh, 50,000 young people. But uh, I, uh, we're working with DPS, which, uh, the development production studio company. Think, but anyway, they worked on the Global Citizens Festival. They're the same production company that works on the Global Citizens Festival that happens annually in New York. Mm-hmm. And usually, what attracts people to that festival is like um, celebrities. But in this case, it's actually going to be the ordinary people who are the main event. So we're really, it's called 50,000 Lions of Justice. And so it's really about young people standing up for the dignity of life through winning in whatever challenge they're facing, whether, you know, whatever that is. Um, it's myself experience parental incarceration or, you know, another person, you know, financial challenge, whatever it is. It's not like, you know, one one aspect is justice, but really whatever that means to break through in your life. Um, and so we just held auditions, for example, like in New York with like, 665 young people and it was insane but that's my current project i'm contracted for one year um to support like behind the scenes and so i think one thing that i I really want to investigate is um you know like kind of what what movements are happening like movements of peace and recently i was at a talk with um kareem karima banoon she's a international human rights lawyer um who's also like part of the United Nations, but um, I would love to talk with her further. But basically, she's originally from Algeria, and her father was an intellectual, um, like an educator at the university in the 1990s when fundamentalism um, was became really extreme. Her father was persecuted and um, att- you know attempted uh, assassination multiple times, and uh, she actually interviewed 300 women. Um, in like different parts of um, the Middle East and but really highlighted um, their peace movements that they're doing that aren't being recognized. So I would love to look into more deeply, even in the United States, what movements are happening that, you know, aren't being recognized, but are really fighting for peace. So I didn't share this part, but my dad was actually federally indicted last year after facing a life sentence. Then it was overturned because the person, you know, admitted they lied. And then the government federally indicted my father along with 22 other people. And then in August, um, they proposed the death penalty for my dad. And um, that in itself was like one experience. But I think um, I actually had done research in college. My senior thesis was going to be on the death penalty and this idea of killing one's own humanity. And it was going to come from the perspective of like the executioner. So there's a lot of in, in terms of the death penalty, like even the guards they use for the execution are not the guards that are on the rows right. because um, that's psychologically, right? Like um, it's, they, they grow attachment. Yeah, and yeah. Um, you know. yeah, it's, yeah, it's really messed. It's yeah. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um, but I was really thinking maybe I could write, I, I have exchanges with my father and I um, when it comes to that, but I think, Something around the death penalty. Letters hmm? back and forth, you mean? You mean exchanges like conversations? Yeah, like or? some 
some email, but then also the person who was in charge of whether or not my father faced the death penalty, which now he's not, but um, what he was going to was actually Jeff Sessions. Okay. Uh, oh, he was the decider. Man. I know oh. that. Right? <laughs> I know, oh yeah, that guy, man. We all know about him. And my oh, dad is. Oh, my dad we really is know about him. <laughs> yeah, and my dad is originally from Nicaragua, and. Um, so there was just uh, so, and it's a like gang related case. Sense. Yeah, no, it it's like not from this country, gang related. You know, Jeff like sessions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like to me, it was like mind blowing the fact that I was like, I'm like, <laughs> like this random person <laughs> who like has no connection, and yet somehow this effing person is like going to determine whether or not my father lives. You know, and I, you know, I'm sure many of you know, like United States attorney generals, they can like one time a a U.S. attorney general, when it came to a death penalty case was like, well, I had a calling from God and God told me to kill this person. Like they, they can do that because it's just their choice. So they could be like, well, today I'm feeling more, you know, violent. Yeah. The attorney general has a lot of power. I would even interject to say a very Sandy close thing, which is, uh, that might be your story. Right. Jeff Sessions tried to kill my dad. <laughs> For real. Oh. I'm not trying what? to be that's hard. That's not a good story. Yeah. Maybe I phrased it glibly, uh, but oh. I am a leader, so I got to do this Hollywood. I should story. write an open letter. I got to write that. Yeah, an open letter to Jeff Sessions. Dear Jeff. Dear Jeff. I want to move on to Paul just because he has such electric story ideas that I, I just can't wait to get to this conversation. Thank you for sending that email. I, I turn now. Lord Billingsley. Lord Billingsley. Which is quite appropriate for this topic. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for sending your email. I want to go over these one by one, uh, but I, I want to start off with a little bit of background about your first idea. I have not seen this video. Eming has seen this video. Maybe Amelia and others have. Um, but this is uh, Kendrick Lamar uh, at a concert. He brings somebody up on stage. Can you please bring us up to speed on this video, Paul? What happened? Um, apparently, he called this girl on stage to sing his lyrics. And the girl was singing the lyrics and busted out with the N-word. And he was like, hey, hey hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Was it a lyric in the song? Yes, it was. It was a direct quote. Well, I mean, you know, it's kind of a gray area. <laughs> what, what are your thoughts here, Paul? <laughs> I hesitate to be authoritative in this conversation. It, 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 it's interesting. <laughs> you know, it just goes to show it's clearly you've been given permission by somebody that it's okay. You know what I'm saying? It's not, yeah. I can't tell you how to feel about that. I remember if as a kid, said, though. Come up here and sing this song with me. Well, I mean, she knows the song. That's how she sings it in her car. I mean, the reason the reason I wanted to bring many, many reasons, right? And I can't wait to see what this leads to. And oh, dear God, please, Charlie, come in right now. <laughs> right now. Because we need to. No, well, yeah. Tell him we're asking him if white people. Tell him we're talking about whether white people can say the N word or not. I think he'll be here in 0.3 seconds. 0.2 seconds. <laughs> 0.2 seconds. So uh, I do want to say this, Paul. This has been addressed by uh, Chris Rock. I don't know if people remember this routine. Oh, I forgot. Whoopi Goldberg said she wasn't feeling it. My bad. My bad. That okay, was... that's the other part. Before I talk about Chris Rock, please tell me what Whoopi Gold. What did Whoopi say? Um, Whoopi was like, she can say it. That's not okay. I don't think he should have called her out. Oh, but... so Whoopi gave her the pass. Yeah. Whoopi said it's Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Man, this poor girl's getting a lot of mixed messages, man. I, you know... <laughs> It's really kind of it's kind of like sauntering into a minefield here. She got set up. That's entrapment. 
Grabbing. Here's the mic. Sing the song. Do it. Do it. Do it in front of thousands of people. Come on. Sing the song. Tina, sing the song. And then she sings the song. Sorry, that was a what's love got to do with the reference for No, the- no, no. But it's still it's it's funny because it's like what else is what else isn't okay? Well, here's what I was gonna say about Chris Brock, and this is very, very relevant, and maybe this will help us um bide our time until Charlie pops up like first of all, um Chris Rock addressed this, and he said, this is the eternal question. Can white people say nigga? And the correct answer is, not really. <laughs> and he said, there was one exception into the rules. And Paul, please let me tell you, if even if you heard this before, this is very important to me. He said, there was a Dr. Dre clause, which is, if you are with your black friends and you were all singing along to Dr. Dre and a line of the song comes up that has the N-word in it, that is the circumstance in which you are allowed to use the N-word. So, but see, Chris Rock is coming from a place where this said white person knows every one of those black people in that room. And yeah, to three like black people that don't know you, can you still say the word? Oh, if they're like not your friends. Yo, man, I mean... Well, you're, like with, I, you're with five of your friends. You're with five black friends, and you're with three black people that aren't your friends, but are their friends. Ooh, mixed crowd. Yeah, man. You got to read the room. You got to read the room. You got to read the room. Because your five boys are going to be like, yeah, but the three other fools are going to kick your ass. Yeah, I have a policy that I say. White people can't say it to me. Well, I have a question for you. So in the last, like, two years while we were at NAM, before we all left, if I on one of the occasions when we were out at the bar before sunset drinking and I just happened to drop it, what's your reaction? You mean you don't usually use that word? I know, but if I did, that's what I'm asking. No, that would be my reaction. I'm just curious if I had. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, been. it's probably a little different, though, because you fall in the same category. You're kind of what I am, right? Yeah, I guess. Well, so. I guess you guys yeah. share share a half between the right. two of you. You can make a whole Filipino, I think. That's, but but yeah. they still won't accept us at the back at the. Yeah. Whole, uh, I mean, it's true, man. You guys are the Mexicans of Asia. Really got quite an uphill battle there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Paul, this thing that you're talking about um, that Whoopi Goldberg said is it the there's a 2012 article I just pulled up and this is kind of old so it's not related to this thing that just happened right with Kendrick Lamar okay because she said something else that look that's pretty interesting in this other article she says that you can't even call it the n-word because that's making it sound cute that was a couple years ago I forgot who said it back then that was like three or four years ago somebody else said it but there was a big question about Eminem because some of Eminem's unreleased early tracks had the n-word in it people were like well I don't know that really is gray area J-Lo used the n-word in a song that was a big um, deal she was a fly girl I think if you're a fly girl regardless of your race you should probably be able to get one maybe (laughs) you just get one the tally board and everything here (laughs) were you a fly girl you know kind of like yes or no questions right like but remember even with j-lo though it was like okay but it wasn't cool for j-lo but then nobody say nothing to fat joe that's a good point man there's gender in there too 
You know what I mean? Oh. So it's like, okay, what, what are you talking about? Right, because Fat Joe got this scar behind his neck. The chorus. Charlie! Charlie! Right on cue. Right on cue. All right. Charlie, it's really, really important conversation that we're having right now. I'm so glad that you've joined us. First of all, welcome, uh, everybody. Charlie. Uh, Charlie, this is everybody. Uh, and I hey, what's up, everybody? I just want to tell you the conversation you're walking into because moments ago I invoked your name. I said, my God, where is Charlie on this? Uh, because Paul wants to write a story or at least talk about uh, this Kendrick Lamar video, the concert video where he brought the girl up on stage. You, have you seen this video? Do you know about this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and the girl, he said, sing along. And I haven't seen the video. He said, sing along to the lyrics and the lyrics to the N-word in it. And she sang the song and Kendrick's like, wait, 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 wait. You, you know, you're supposed to sing that part of the song. Uh, Can't sing all the words, bitch. I mean, so right. that's the he didn't say bitch, but you feel me? He was very nice about it, but it's just like, yeah, you know. Hey, I've heard people make the argument that he shouldn't have invited a white girl on stage to do the song. To which but my see, reply is, up, if, come on, if you what, no wait, 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 hold on, if you are a mainstream hip hop artist the vast majority of people at all your shows are going to be white, number one. Number two, damn show the first 80 roles. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, don't know, I don't know like who the fuck he was going to pull up besides, like it was going to be another white person more yeah. often than not. You know what I'm saying? So was it a setup then? Like, was it kind of unfair to say sing along? She knew the words. Was she supposed to do, is she obligated as a non-black person to be like, mm, and then not say it and then keep singing? Yes. How is she supposed to yes. read food, which is a room full yes. of thousands of people? Be- because hip-hop is still my fucking house. Like, you know, consider your entrance into this show like an Airbnb. Like, I still have house rules you gotta follow. Like, you don't just... It's, 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 it's not like a situation where you, you know, paid your little fee to get in and now you could do what the fuck you want. No, this is like my culture. This is my house. Okay. And so I have a quick coming in, coming in, like, hold if they're coming in, please be respectful. Just my little my little wonky shit, my cultural idioms. You know what I'm saying? When in Rome, I don't I don't believe that I'm not going to go into whether white people should say that I don't even like nigga, whether white people should say nigga in general. Uh, But what I do believe is that if you're a white girl and you're a fan of Kendrick Lamar and you're enough of a fan of Kendrick Lamar that you like know his songs by heart and shit, you probably know that he doesn't want to hear you yelling the nigga word at the top of your fucking lungs on his stage. Did she yell it at the top of her lungs? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, it's the lyrics to the song. It's The song was Mad City. Yeah, man. that's There's some bombs in there. Yeah. Uh, let me ask. I just Four times to... in every chorus, at least. So, so you know what I'm saying? Things that we covered um, in jest, kind of tongue-in-cheek, making light of it, and it is a serious issue, so I don't want to make too much light of it, but Chris Rock uh, had a famous routine, which the question was, can white people say the N-word? His answer was, not really. Do you remember this? Uh, yeah. Routine? And his, do you remember what his caveat was? You, it, the Dr. Dre rules. If you're with black friends and you're singing along to Dr. Dre, you should be allowed to sing the whole song. Just don't get too excited about it. Uh, I have some white people in my life who uh, I wouldn't be offended if they used the word nigga because I know that I can trust them in a way that I can't trust 
a random white chick behind me at the J. Cole concert. You feel what I'm saying? So, uh, because I took my daughter and my son to uh, uh, two concerts last year uh, during the summer, uh, Chance the Rapper and J. Cole. And at the J. Cole concert, like everybody behind us, it was this whole row of white and Asian kids behind us. And it was, it almost felt like on some of the songs, nigga was the only word they all yelled out in unison. Eventually, like my daughter checked that shit, like the fuck? Watch your fucking mouth. If you don't do that, if you if you don't tell people to watch their mouth, they think it's cool. And when you surrounded by other white people and other non-black people and y'all using it amongst each other all the time, it's nothing to you to accidentally blurt it out in front of black people. So and then about, let me ask the Puerto Rican question very quickly because um All right, hit me with the Puerto Rican question. Here's the Puerto Rican question. You know, you talk about like hip hop is still my house, right? Um, right, that's an important sentence. But you it's know, Puerto Rican house too. Yeah. So what does that mean? Does is there just a universal pass? Because and the reason we came up with this is because J Lo got in a lot of trouble for using the M word years ago. Uh, J Lo got in a lot of trouble for saying nigga. I think because she was courting like white mainstream America. She was like pop princess at that time. Right. It wasn't right. like. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. it if, wasn't if like she was white friendly at the time. Nobody would have cared. If she said nigga on the record. Exactly. So like if she said it, like, it was my question. So I, I felt like J Lo should probably have some kind of uh, credentials just because she was a fly girl. I feel like just by the virtue of being a fly girl. So if she had uh, said it, I that. in some ways feel the same way. But she is a Puerto Rican from the Bronx, and Puerto Ricans from the Bronx uh, are part of the foundation of hip hop. They was there. They was doing some of the first b-boying. They took b-boying to the floor. It was, uh, you know, it was a and you know, Cool Herc. We think of hip hop as a Black American thing, but Cool Herc is a is a Caribbean dude. You know what I'm saying? Barbados. So, so um, uh, the island Negro, right? Like Sydney while Corsair. I say it's a Black culture. You know what I'm saying? I'm not I'm not saying that hella short sightedly and trying to lock out my my island niggas. Thank you for coming in when you did, because that conversation would not have been complete without uh, your way in. Uh, that was Paul's first uh, pitch story. I think there's a story there, at least a flowchart, at least a list. You know, what are the everybody seems to have? It's kind of arbitrary, right? Like, you know, what actually. Whoopi Goldberg said, oh, you that big a deal. Chris Rock said, here's one exception. Kendrick said, no exceptions. But that's my thing, because Charlie's thing has always been, I'll give permission to who I want to give permission to, but I always tell him, you can't give permission to people to say it to me. I'm not saying that Charles will do it, but sometimes people take it as if, oh, I got the permission to say it to all of my black friends, because one of my black friends said it's okay. That's a good point. That's a good point. Non-transferable. I think that's what that is. The past is non-transferable. Right. Uh, but uh, um, kind of to go further on the Puerto Rican question, like this is very exclusive to, uh, you know, um, like the island motherfuckers, the Puerto Ricans, Dominican, well, uh, uh, Panamanians, blah, blah. If we're going to talk. No, no, no. That, hold on, hold on. Because I just watched the interview 
uh, with a, by a Mexican rapper who actually complained that a large part of the reason that he can't be successful as a Mexican rapper, he from L.A., is because he can't use the N-word the same way that Fat Joe and uh, Big Pun do. He really because all the time be real is 100 percent. no up. be real black no 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 be real be real uh dad is a black Sendog cuban black no yeah. send dog is black cuban nah be real black Sendog dog is straight up black cuban but be real's dad be is a black, a black cuban be real's black show he a black yeah yeah he yep. might be a cuban race, uh-huh. race is truly he, a social construct yeah yeah nah he in the diaspora and, but, um, he in the diaspora but, um, he in the diaspora <laughs> He diasporic, uh, but um, the thing about like um, the thing about um, and that's the other thing too. Like, uh, be real was in a black gang. He a he a he a whatever part blood. I forget what that shit is called. But um, like Mac Ten, like he wasn't no Serrano, you know, Mata Salva, nothing. He was a black gang member. You feel what I'm saying? So for everybody. Um, rap fan of the early 90s and if you're not what's wrong with you but you, you're forgiven for now these guys uh this is these are the members of cypress hill um which was really a very very early pioneering uh gangster rap group now they kind yeah, of yeah. that boy stoner group um but i always assumed would be real was just an la mexican dude i, I had no idea but I do want to I do want to move us along because Paul had some other relevant points just about um, the black visibility in popular culture right now. Your example was, um, you know, obviously the royal wedding, and you mentioned the fact. Okay, so okay, yeah, Prince Harry marries a black girl, and then Idris Elba's the DJ at the wedding. Please, please tell me how that relates, Paul. I don't know who was the DJ at uh, Prince Harry, Prince William's wedding. Snoop Dogg. Snoop Dogg performed at his bachelor party. He wrote a song for him. I don't know if you guys remember this. Snoop Dogg wrote a song for Prince Harry for his bachelor party. You playing? No, I'm not playing. Why is this not in my Snoop Dogg mixtape? <laughs> that's a that's a deep cut. December second, two thousand ten. All right, I'm in that bitch. Two thousand ten. First of all, he he hasn't been engaged for eight years. You're talking about Prince William. Prince William Snoop Dogg made a song for Prince William's. Oh, he's the dork, though. Why would he get the Snoop Dogg song? Harry's the cool one. Because remember, he was the young, handsome one, and Harry was the ginger geek before he really developed the chin. Let's stop well, acting the like roles this have reversed. Or not. This is about rich involved. and poor. We're paying attention because they're royalty, not because they have any relevant purpose in our lives. Harry's always been the cool one. And William's always been the cool one. And William's always been a dork. It didn't matter what they looked like. And why would William get the Snoop Dogg song when Harry's the cool one? He was the one playing pool butt naked. You remember that in Vegas? Remember what came out in like the sun with Prince Harry wearing the costume? Swastika. Right. Did like everyone forget that? I feel right. I feel like I don't know. I don't it's know. been like, six years. Was that a Halloween Wait, party? No, 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 what was that? Does. She's black I, though. I, she the wife's black. She's not Jewish. I'm not. <laughs> that's true right who knows she might be jewish who knows um i want to move on to our next piece now that we've covered uh important moments in black olympic history uh thanks to both of you for sharing uh, uh paul you also mentioned uh, janelle monet is this something that's in the news now or is this something that already happened she she her parents had mixed reactions to her coming out uh, I, I I assumed. I mean, I, I don't know much about Janelle Monae. I like her music a lot. I think she's cool. She's 
style, but I don't know much about her personal life. So, I don't know. I guess I thought maybe she was gay. I never gave it much thought. Is this is this a recent development where she came out or she came out a long time ago? No, she just supposedly came out. But they've been. So, yeah. So, what is this story, this Janelle Monet story? Is this something you want to write about? What What is what's the deal? One of her parents wasn't um, very happy. I was just wondering what, what she, people thought about it. I know she's gotten pretty popular over the last. 10 years. I mean, I, I know that this is like, this is a problematic thing to say, but I, I just, I always, I, I just assumed she was a gay woman. I just based on her parents, you know, um, again, you know, you can't rely on the trappings, you know, uh, sexual preference, performative, et cetera. But yeah, I I know, for you, I think it's anybody, any, a woman that wears pants and is not in a skirt anytime you've ever seen her for you. Me? Kind of me? You didn't about me? No. No, I mean, <laughs> I don't know, man. I'm fine. Yeah, I, I, I've never seen her in a skirt. And I'm like, <laughs> it might be why you feel like that. <laughs> that doesn't say anything about your uh, sexual preference, but people make assumptions. I, I'm sorry that I made an assumption. Although I will say the assumption ended up being true. You know, <laughs> it's very true. It's an accurate assumption. But I don't know. A lot of people I've been talking to were like, oh, she was such an honest person before. They feel like now that she's coming out, it's like this ploy thing. Even earlier in her career, when she first came out, it was like, oh, I'm hella commercial. Am I going to like you as much now as I did before you didn't come out? And I think this is just the next progression. A lot of people are thinking that for her, this is just a natural next progression. She's done movies now. And to be more mainstream, to get more attention, you have the Little B effect. You feel me? Lil B was like, I'm gay. Well, Lil B is Frank now Frank more popular than Frank Ocean. Frank Ocean is a, a good comparison. And I think the reason, but Lil B never said he was gay. He was wait, 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 wait. On what planet is Lil B more popular than Frank Ocean? Because here on Earth. Like the spokesperson. Okay. <laughs> you know what? That's you say true. what you want. But Lil B is the spokesperson for young black gay people that are into hip hop music. So, well, Frank How? When he's not gay. I, I, you know what? That, that, that is neither here nor there. Okay. <laughs> His own sexual preference has nothing to do with whether you're the voice for a particular crowd or not. Um, yeah, Frank Ocean never said I'm a gay artist. He said, "Oh yeah, I've been you know this song's about a man," and I because I was happened to be in a relationship with a man at that time. And sometimes yeah. I'm. With him. No, he said it was the first time he fell in love, and it was with a man. Yeah, but he also was like, "Oh yeah," and, but sometimes I'm with women, and that kind of fluidity. You know, I mean, I guess you could ascribe that retroactively to like a David Bowie or a Prince kind of person. I don't know. It, it's a ocean. But in the black community, that particular, it's an issue for the black community. In the black community, people are always like, oh, there's men that hide their sexuality and continue to have relationships with women and yeah. whatever. You know, the argument is for that. But I think that's the thing with it's like Frank Ocean was, that's why Frank Ocean isn't the spokesperson for gay people. He's kind of above that binary. Like, he's not, oh, I'm not trying to be, like, the gay R&B singer because I'm, like, not really gay because I don't identify as gay. It's like the, when people say, like, I don't, you can just not identify. You could just be like, oh, sometimes, you know, I had some relationships with men and I had some relationships with women, and uh, but I'm not, I don't really identify as gay. And, like, that's groundbreaking. That's a different way of identifying on both sides. You know, it used to be, you know, it's like we grew up in San Francisco, right? So, you know, there's a lot of accommodation for sexual identity and whatever you want to be. Um, but even in the gay community, they were like, well, you, you, if you if you had a relationship with a guy, you're gay now and you're one of us. And, and sometimes that, it doesn't work. Baby said, I'm bisexual. Nobody really cared. Who said that? Baby. Cash money. Wow, that I didn't hear. I'm really. I'm I'll put really some respect on it. That day, he was like, "I'm bisexual." I'm behind on my gay rappers. Nobody 
he's not white friendly. Nobody cares. He can well, say that all he wants. I guess, but it's because he's not white friendly. Like, think about it. Like when Lance Bass came out, all of white America was like, "Hallelujah, praise you, Lance Bass. You're so brave." Too. Still, but it's just, but it's just like this, though, Russell. There's a there's petitions going around right now. Let's take R. Kelly, Chris Brown off of Spotify, off a of title, right? Who's taking off Michael Jackson? Because they just got a hold of his shit. They just when Michael Jackson died, they just got the rights to the Be- the Beatles music. Was the first time the Beatles music was put on iTunes. All right, wait, Paul, Paul, hold on. I got to interject really quickly. One, we talked about this last episode. You might not recall. <laughs> we covered it in depth. And two, there's really no comparison there because we're having a conversation about sexual identity, and that's a whole other issue about people who have been accused of abusing somebody. I think that's separate. We got to leave sure. that over. But yeah, if you're if you're um, faulting on gay stuff right now, assault is assault. Was there anything I left out? Oh, this is one last topic, and I'm glad. I, I hope Charlie that your sound is a little better because I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. But maybe I'll start with you, Amelia, um, because mm-hmm. this is the New York story, and you are in New. But there's a you know there's a lot changing in New York City right now uh, about uh, the way that we prosecute marijuana crimes. You know, the district attorney is saying that, you know, ready to talk about whatever decriminalization looks like, whatever legalization looks like. They want to stop arresting people for marijuana crimes. I went to a forum last night, a town hall meeting. Uh, you know, most of the regular people who were there who were like, hey, man, war on drugs has got to go. We have got to stop criminalizing drug use of all kinds, not just marijuana. Um, everybody smokes weed, but only poor and black and Latino people get arrested for smoking weed, all that kind of stuff that we've heard before. But I also heard something that I haven't heard in a long time, which was um, a black woman who was probably in her 60s or 70s who got up on the mic and she was like, I live in the projects and it stinks. Everybody's smoking blunts in the stairwells every day. We got to get rid of it. You know, she had a very like negative uh, response to the idea of legalizing marijuana. And it's just there were a lot of voices in the room. But uh, have you been working on this campaign? Are you familiar with this, Amelia? Do you have some thoughts on this changing landscape? Actually, it's really interesting you mentioned that because in Harlem, like right where I live, I live like right by 125th. And um, the bus from, I think it's Roosevelt Island, comes to Ward 125th. Ward, Ward. Oh, Ward. Ward. Roland, sorry. So it comes to 125th. And I actually, so I went to a recent town hall meeting where they uh, like invited some of the local police officers from the precinct. Like there's some, they're having like some discussion because in our like four block radius, we have five rehab facilities. So yeah. And then, but then we have a huge school, like a huge like elementary school right in the middle. So it's like, a, it's a mess. So I went there because I'm also working with, um, I was working, I was talking with like someone from the Legal Action Center about like different policy work. But so anyways, I was there and my, I had the same reaction you had, Russell, at the town hall where most of the people who were like, we need more, we need like, um, you know, those, oh, I don't know what the official term, like the headlights that they put on blocks. Oh yeah, yeah, floodlights, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, floodlights, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they were like, we need those on every block. And we need um, more police officers. And like, these were like, I, I was like sitting there like shocked. Um, but these are all people from Harlem, people from the Lincoln Heights projects. Like we need more lights. We need more um, yeah, people walking. Cause we have, you know, this elementary school that's like dead center, like, you know, surrounded by five, you know, four or five rehab centers. Um, 
but I was kind of like, what? That's your reaction? It's like, let's it's instill all, more fear. Like, No, because it's right. For them, that's what it's related to. It's like, oh, right. these guys smoke weed, and I see them all the time. Right. They're the problem. But right. you don't realize if they were drinking or doing any other thing, they'd still be the problem. You'd still want lights on your street, right? Right, right. Or like, also like, hmm, why don't we think about different ways that we could support these people rather than creating more fear right. in a community? And like, if you have young people, especially, especially like elementary school you know children are so observant they're like sponges so like the way we treat people in our community they'll they'll absolutely witness every day and so like I, you know i was like the young definitely like the youngest person in the room right. no one else shows up to town hall meetings um and then also i'm like you know like kind of new to harlem i just you know came from ohio for four years so no one knows who the hell i am so if i just show up and i'm like um actually like little white girl in the back um my opinion is they'd be like uh shut the fuck up <laughs> you have no idea what this community is like um, which is real. That's real. Right. yeah like that's that's like that's totally real but i think um yeah i was i was like surprised so i ended up talk- talking to my friend at the legal action center because she's been actually working on this project this is like a big thing that's happening in Harlem. That's simple, but that is a part of the puzzle. And it's the kind of thing that we encounter when we talk about reform is that there are members of the community. Some people still think that, you know, uh, these, these kinds of social issues need a law enforcement solution. I want to thank everybody for being here. Even the people who had loud dryers in their house, um, even the people who forgot that we talked about something last week. And, and brought <laughs> Even the people who have bad internet. But most of all, uh, I want to thank Amelia because this is your first time here and you're a wonderful person. It really is. It's an honor and a pleasure to have you. And I'd love to invite you to future uh, recordings and editorial meetings. And we look forward to working with you. Welcome to the team, Amelia. And thanks to everybody else. Uh, Thank you to our listeners. And for those who don't know, I said it at the top of the show. The show has a name. It's Margin Call. Uh, we are no longer just a Quest On podcast. We are now Margin Call, the podcast of Quest On Media. Um, thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks to everybody for being here. Uh, we'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. Yeah. This episode of Quest On Media's Margin Call is produced in Richmond, California. Lord Billingsley, you must be on the Meghan Markle side of the royal family.